Welcome to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. I'm Liz Freeman Rosenzweig. In today's podcast, our hosts Chante and Tony speak with Daphne Keller from Stanford Center for Internet and Society. Their discussion focuses on European privacy topics, specifically the interplay of the right to be forgotten and the new general data protection regulation. Thank you for joining us today, Daphne Keller. Could you tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm the Director for Intermediary Liability at Stanford Center for Internet and Society. That's a a lot of long words, but what it means is that I work on questions about how speech platforms like Google or Twitter um, make choices that affect the speech rights and other rights of their users and how the law drives them to make particular choices that may not be in the best interest of users. And so when we're talking about intermediaries, who are those exactly? Intermediaries are defined differently in different areas of law, but the the core concept is that they are acting as um, a a platform or technical infrastructure for ordinary internet users to exchange speech and ideas and participation. So they are not themselves the source of the, the content that appears through their services. What are the hot topics right now in intermediary law? In the U.S., there are a couple of things that have had a lot of attention recently. Um, One is the question of a question that arose in particular with uh, after the, the Charlottesville violence, when a bunch of platforms in a row took the Daily Stormer down. The Daily Stormer is this scary neo-Nazi publication that was being extremely offensive about the uh, the woman who was killed at the at the protests. Um, and, you know, not only social media platforms like YouTube and Facebook took down some of their content, which most of us are used to, but also some deeper infrastructure providers like their registrar and um, Cloudflare, which is a content delivery network. They also terminated services to the to the Daily Stormer. And what that meant effectively you know, by losing Cloudflare, it was very hard for the the publication, this legal but offensive publication, um, to avoid being uh, targeted by denial of service attacks. You know, it, it very meaningfully mm-hmm. reduced their ability to participate on the internet at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people, including the CEO of Cloudflare, who wrote a bunch publicly about it, saw that as a problem. You know, they they don't think it's consistent with democratic values or due process that there's a private company making this decision that so profoundly affects public speech. Um, so that's that's one big U.S. issue. Another is there's legislation right now called SESTA. I can't remember what the acronym is for, but it's um, seeking to amend Communications Decency Act 230, which is the core liability protection that basically has allowed internet businesses as we know them to to develop. <clears throat> so that one's a very big deal. And then a third thing that's coming up more and more frequently is the question of jurisdiction of courts in one country to require platforms to take down speech all over the world. So there was a ruling from the Canadian Supreme Court a couple of months ago saying that Google had to stop showing particular search results all over the world based on Canadian law. And there's a case pending in Europe about whether French right to be forgotten law should also be enforced globally. 
We would like to tell us a little bit more about the paper that you have pending right now with uh, BTLJ, the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, and discuss at you know a high level the difference between like these laws in Europe versus these laws in the United States. Yeah, so it's it's a paper that gets into a lot of super nerdy doctrinal detail. That's about, why we're here. <laughs> about a topic that speaks to some really deep values that I think everybody cares about, even if they don't track that, uh, you know, the strange language of, of the, the law that's involved. Um, so the, the article is about the next iteration of the right to be forgotten. The version of the so-called right to be forgotten that exists in the EU now is a product of a 2014 court judgment against Google. It was a court judgment at the um, CJEU, the Court of Justice of the European Union. And it said that if an individual doesn't like search results about themselves appearing in Google search results, they can go to Google and say, hey, take this down because it is about me. And Google in general is supposed to honor that, you know, even if the results are true and even if the results aren't harming the person, as, as long as they are not actively in the public interest and there's a particular interest in seeing them, Google is supposed to remove those search results um, anytime somebody searches for the individual's name. Um, so that's sort of how things have been for three years now. But there is new EU-wide legislation, the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, which will change the details of how the right to be forgotten works in a way that nobody's paid a lot of attention to, but, but which will make things worse in various ways. So the, the article is about how this new version of the right to be forgotten under the GDPR will incentivize not just Google, but other platforms such as Facebook or Twitter mm -hmm. to be more willing to go ahead and silence user speech or remove links to user speech just to avoid getting in trouble, even if really they shouldn't have silenced that speech, even under European law, even under the right to be forgotten. Um, so let's first consider what's going on with this original right to be forgotten under European law. Could you explain to our audience why that was constructed and um, why that's different than what we traditionally think in terms of privacy rights in the United States? So I think there's a doctrinal answer and a political answer. We obviously <laughs> want both. <laughs> um, so I'll start with the doctrinal answer. Um, the EU has a, a right called the data protection right um, which is not the same as privacy rights as we construe them in the U.S. In, in the U.S., if you have a privacy right to prevent a newspaper from publishing something or um, things like that, uh, it's usually because it's harming you, you know, because it is um, very intimate, sensitive information or because it would be offensive to the reasonable person to have it published. There's this concept of um, harm that drives any kind of legal privacy right you have. Europe has that too, but they also separately have a right to data protection. And the data protection right protects what the Germans call informational self-determination. It's this idea that you have a, a right, a fundamental right to control information about yourself um, and to keep it from being replicated and shared in ways that you don't want 
um, whether it's hurting you or not. It's sort of an extension of yourself. And um, this right, it's, it's, it's a funny sequence. It, it became a sort of a statutory right under the data protection directive in the mid-90s. And then it was added to the European Charter of Fundamental Rights as a fundamental right, oh, wow. meaning it's like mm. it was added to the Bill of Rights right. <laughs> a couple of years later. So it, it started as this very bureaucratic creature of, of statute, um, but it is very much perceived as the equivalent of a, a constitutional right now. Yeah. Um, and so, sorry, the question is how that leads us to to the ruling in 2014. So um, the... I don't want to get too complicated here, but um, that the data protection directive says that if an entity called a controller under data protection law is processing your information, you as an individual can tell them to stop. And unless they have a good reason to keep processing it, they have to stop. Um, and that was a concept that was developed really to deal with databases and like records that your doctor's office is holding about you and you know stuff that's this very just back-end storage of data um, and it's very applicable and useful now if you're talking about internet companies tracking where you click to and tracking um, what you're interested in and you know maybe selling that information to advertisers this idea of a data protection right to stop that is is extremely useful um, but Nobody was really sure, and I think still people aren't quite sure, how to apply that concept to internet intermediaries because there's a big difference. I mean, just looking at Google, there's a big difference between what Google knows about you as a user because you performed searches and clicked and so forth mm -hmm. versus the information that's indexed in web search because some publisher published it on the internet. Um, and so the question of whether you can make Google stop replicating web pages or you could make Twitter take down a tweet that's about you um, is is n relatively new and untested still. Although in, in this case against Google, the court said, yes, Google does have to take down search results in, in the way that I described before. And so historically, how have intermediaries dealt with this task of uh, receiving a notification, you need to remove this, you know, embarrassing article a long time ago, perhaps about an arrest or um, a default on a loan. Um, how have these intermediaries dealt with these requests and what are the challenges that they face historically? Yeah, well, historically, um, Europe has been governed by, your European intermediaries have been governed by a notice and takedown system for any kind of claim. So, you know, a copyright claim or a defamation claim um, or a privacy claim, they all basically work the same way. Once the intermediary knows that um, a user has shared unlawful content, then they have to take it down or else, you know, defend it and be willing to face liability for it themselves. And so, um, Intermediaries operating in Europe generally have notice and takedown systems where, where they do exactly that. Um, but what's different about the adding a data protection-based right to be forgotten is it just incredibly broadens mm -hmm. the number of instances where people can make that happen. Because all you have to say is, this is about me, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. as opposed to this is defamation and it meets yeah. the elements and there, you know, there are no defenses and, and, and et cetera. Yeah. And so how do these intermediaries like 
Facebook, for example, balance someone throwing shade on a Facebook post versus, you know, something very serious like a credit default or something like that. Because um, it seems like even as a user, like I can see the difference between po- someone posting like, you know, something innocuous about me online versus like some intense medical data being released about me, you know, but it, it's interesting that the laws now cover both. So what, what do intermediaries do in that situation? Well, I think in Facebook's case, they are very focused on their own terms of service or their own discretionary community guidelines. So the first thing that that they do when they get a removal request for a, a post a user has put up is they look at their own rules and say, you know, is this too violent or too hateful or too private or, you know, too something under our own rules? And then only if the answer to that question is, no, this is fine per our rules, do they then look at the law? Um, And because they're relatively broad in what they are willing to take down voluntarily, Mm -hmm. they run into this issue maybe less um, than than some other platforms do. Um, You know, they... They really want to cultivate a community and they want people to want to be there um, and they don't want to scare them off with offensive speech. Sure. Uh, it's, it's different for Google Web Search because with Web Search, I think what most people want is to be able to find what they're looking for. Yeah. You know? exactly. <laughs> and if they want to find something offensive, they want to find something offensive. You know, maybe they're researching it for a dissertation. Maybe they're yeah. looking for it because they're hateful people. You know, who knows? <laughs> who but knows? They, they, yeah. they want to find it. Um, and so... You know, web search historically was much, still is, much more resistant to taking things down unless it actually violates a law. Great. So earlier you mentioned the general data protection regulation, the GDPR. Um, In simple terms, can you explain a little bit about what that is? (laughs) No one has ever explained the GDPR in simple terms. (laughs) Um, so you had to pick three words to just, no, I'm kidding. Unwieldy, uh, bureaucratic, and incomprehensible. Um, so the, the, the GDPR is a big overhaul of data protection law. Um, I, I think it takes the law from 14,000 words to 50 or some, something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a big uh, increase in, in scope and complexity. And only a tiny bit of it is about the right to be forgotten. Most of it is about these back-end data uses. You know, what data um, does Twitter or Google or an advertising company or anybody else collect about you? How are they going to use it? What rights do you have to control that? What notice do they have to give you? How do they coordinate with regulators in Europe? Um, so there, most of the GDPR is about that kind of thing. Um, and it is creating a big compliance crisis, basically, among companies that do business in Europe and even companies that don't do business in yeah. Europe, but that are now jurisdictionally within scope of, of this new law. And could um, you explain that jurisdictional reach now that is under the new GDPR? Yeah. So the... Um, Previous data protection law, it was disputed exactly how it applied to to foreign companies. Um, But under the new one, it's very clear that there is um, a more expansive scope internationally. And they say that that any company that is uh, processing data of Europeans and uh, monitoring them, effectively tracking what they're doing, falls within the scope of the GDPR. Uh, so, for example, um, 
you know, I use the New York Times website a lot and it recommends articles to me mm -hmm. because it knows what yeah. I've clicked on before, mm -hmm. that would probably count as monitoring and bring it within the, the jurisdictional scope. Um, I mean, what that means in practice really varies by company. You know, these European regulators who enforce data protection law are not um, unreasonable and they are not hugely resourced. So I wouldn't expect them to come after random startups in Brazil or, you know, all of the I don't know, hundreds of thousands of, <laughs> of companies and, and non-companies, NGOs, everything else um, that, that might be within scope. Um, but if you're a company that does have a growing European user base or that has contracts with clients in Europe or that in any way sort of needs data to flow back and forth, this is a big deal. Um, so I, I've been to conferences that had, well, one conference that had a session for general counsels on how to ask your CEO for the budget for your GDPR compliance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for a sense of how, how big it is. Um, how do you see the GDPR changing the right to freedom? You mentioned that it's, it's essentially going to have to be more broad, right? If it's tapering it down to fewer words, it's mm -hmm. going to have to just cover more. Sorry, the, for the right to be forgotten? Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I think a lot of people don't think that it changes the right to be forgotten. And I think that's because they haven't looked closely enough. Um, and in particular, right now, the right to be forgotten has very little uh, binding legal guidance about the notice and takedown process, about what a platform is supposed to do when it gets an allegation uh, claiming that something violates the law. Um, and that's a problem. It would be better to have guidance. Um, the GDPR does give guidance, but it gives bad guidance. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's because the people who drafted it they're, they're privacy experts. You know, they weren't thinking about notice and takedown processes. This isn't um, part of their world, especially. And so they, they don't know about things like um, the great deal of research that's out there showing that platforms routinely take down perfectly legal speech rather than spend money paying a lawyer to assess it, yeah. you know, rather than taking the time to think about whether the allegation is true rather than face any kind of legal risk. And people complaining, seeking removal, routinely make false claims. Yeah. You know, there are trolls everywhere. Yeah. And there are trolls yeah. in the notice and takedown process, too. And there, there are really ugly examples. Like the government of Ecuador um, seems to have been using um, a company, I think, based out of Spain to take down criticisms from human rights advocates and to take down, in one case, a video of oh, wow. police abuse. Um, you know, so this is, it, it's a big deal. It affects both important public speech, like this stuff about the Ecuadorian government, and individual speech, you know, like your communication with your friends on, on Facebook. Um, so, you know, there's, there's very compelling evidence that we need the notice and takedown system to be constrained somehow if we don't want internet users' rights to suffer. And um, there's a civil society standard that's been endorsed by the Electronic Frontier Foundation and, a, you know, a whole lot of um, 
internet users advocacy groups a standard called the Manila Principles, which suggests ways that notice and takedown should work in order to uh, to protect internet users' rights. Um, and one of the things they say is that ideally, you shouldn't have tech companies deciding this at all. You know, you should have to yeah. have a court order to yeah. say what speech is legal or illegal. You know, don't put this decision yeah. in the hand of someone who has no motivation to, to yeah. defend users' rights. And only the motivation to avoid litigation or unnecessary mm -hmm. entanglements. Yeah, yeah. So, and there are a lot of more detailed procedural things you can do, like have penalties for people who make bad faith allegations or ensure that the accused user knows about the accusation mm -hmm. and has a chance to defend his or her speech. Um, none of those are in the GDPR. And indeed, it <laughs> arguably, more than arguably, the GDPR prohibits telling the speaker um, that their content has disappeared from the Internet. Oh, wow. um, yeah, this is that's not a change. The um, most data protection regulators think that that's what the law says now. And in fact, Google was not that long ago was fined 150,000 euros in Spain for telling a webmaster that their website had been delisted. Wow. wow. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's really interesting contrast in um, a, a lot of other countries outside of Europe have data protection law modeled on the law in Europe. So they'll have, in some cases, verbatim the same law. Um, a lot of Latin America has law modeled on the Spanish implementation of the Data Protection Directive. And in Mexico this past year, there was a case um, where the, the data protection regulators said, yes, Google, you do have to take down search results, just like in Europe, on a right-to-be-forgotten theory. And the webmaster came into court, it was for a magazine called Fortuna Magazine, and they had written about how the um, allegations of financial irregularity by um, a, a person from a wealthy trucking family. Um, the, the magazine came into court and said, wait a minute, I have a due process right to know this right, is happening. Right. I have a free expression right. And the court agreed. So now there's this split between how Spain interprets this law and how Mexico interprets a nearly identical wow. law and right. what rights they think are yeah. at issue. And for compliance purposes, for a company trying to manage 130 different jurisdictions and how they're going to implement different laws, sounds like a nightmare. It, it, it's hard. <laughs> Um, so now let's talk a little bit more about your your articles, um, more interesting proposals. I, th I thought that the recommendations towards the end were particularly interesting. And I was hoping that you could give our audience um, a little bit of an explanation of why you chose those recommendations. And so you talked a lot about the e-commerce directive as a replacement for governing the notice and takedown. And d does that track along the lines of the Manila principle or what exactly is e-commerce e directive it does not track the manila principles that would be too easy that would be too easy but it could you know there, there is room for courts to say in to interpret this in a way that protects people's rights we're going to say that you you know you have to give notice to the person whose speech is affected, things like that. So there's, there's just much more room to get to a good outcome under the e-commerce directive. There's also um, uh, a lot of advocacy around the e-commerce directive. And, and so using the e-commerce directive as a way to shape notice and takedown under the GDPR means that if somebody um, you know wins an important victory in a copyright case, for example, 
um, saying intermediaries don't have to take things down unless the allegation is substantiated or you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can then take that and apply it to other kinds of claims as long as those claims are governed by the e-commerce directive. I mean, a, a lot of the goals of that last section uh, were just to, they're really aimed at um, European lawyers, European regulators, and European litigators trying to suggest ways that they can use existing laws mm-hmm. and use um you know, European law, not some Americans' idea of what their law should be, uh, to, to get to a better outcome. And something else you uh, stressed in that recommendation section is, uh, I think it's consistent with some of the historical enforcement, but you advocated for hosts being not subject to the right to be forgotten. So, for example, Facebook uh, and things like that, but rather only limiting the right to be forgotten to things like Google and Bing. Um, mm-hmm. Could you explain why that's a good policy choice? Yeah. So as a policy matter, um, there's a big difference between Google taking down a link to your website versus Facebook taking down your post. Because if Google takes down a link, your website is still there. (laughs) People can still look at it. I mean, your visibility is greatly affected if nobody can find you in web search. But if you have you know, people coming to you because they saw a link in an email or they came from a social media link or mm-hmm. they just know about you already, you're still there. Right. Yeah. Um, if Facebook takes you down, you're gone. Right. Yeah. And, and in many cases, people don't even have their own copy of what they posted on mm-hmm. Facebook. I don't have my own copy yeah. of things right. I put on Twitter or Facebook. Um, and so if those companies truly delete your speech, you're never getting it back. Um, This happened to an artist who used um, Google's blogger service for Mm. his writing last year. They had an allegation. It's not clear what the allegation was, um, but something that caused them to terminate his account and, and delete everything. Um, that's that's a pretty severe consequence. So I yeah. think you know extending a law that could create that consequence would be extremely unwise. Um, it may well be that um, lawmakers do want hosting platforms and social media to have to take some things down, and that's fine. But there should be something crafted clearly to limit collateral damage to legal speech. And is it from your perspective, is the threat of hosts deleting this data? hosts overreacting to these uh, requests, or is it actually enforcement agencies or governments putting pressure on them to get rid of it? Uh, it's, it's all of the above. I mean, there's, there's the risk of the data truly getting deleted, as we just talked about. Um, there's a risk of overreacting and over-removal, really, for every kind of intermediary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Google and Bing, we know, have a history of at least putting a lot of money into trying to do a good job and looking at complaints carefully and and rejecting a lot of them, um, correctly rejecting a lot of them, according to review by regulators. Um, So, you know, those are at least big companies with the resources to try to do a good job. If this were extended to hosting platforms, which is much more than just Facebook and Twitter, you know, it's your local Mm -hmm. newspaper's comments forum and and so forth, they are much less likely to have the resources to to try to do a good job like that. And then one of the last recommendations we'll cover, um, you advocated for um, a little bit more deference towards freedom of expression in right to be forgotten cases. How hopeful are you of that in uh, European jurisdictions? Well, 
It varies by jurisdiction. Um, and it's also, I think, important to acknowledge that most or I think all European countries do strike a different balance between free expression values and other values than U.S. courts do. And that's fine. You know, I, I don't think it's the business of American lawyers to tell them, no, you should do it our way, you know, as long as it's within the scope that, um, you know, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and sources like that permit. Um, there are, there are some compelling arguments for being more privacy protective in, mm -hmm. in the way that Europe is. Um, but what I'm hoping for is that national legislatures and courts will look at the notice and takedown process as a free expression issue and say, hey, wait a minute, yeah. no matter what free expression our law says to protect, it's not going to get protected in real life unless we create a way to prevent intermediaries from being too cautious and taking things down. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Daphne. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah. Um, and if you could let our listeners know uh, where they can best find you online, we'll also include links in the show notes. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Daphne HK, and I tweet primarily about the kinds of things we've been talking about here. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I'm on the Stanford Center for Internet and Society blog and uh, also blog about this a fair amount. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Chante Westmoreland and Tony Butel with production help from me, Liz Freeman Rosenstein. We're committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast so we can reach other listeners. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person.